Welcome to the podcast. As Red Robin's voiceover artist, I'm here to explain bottomless. How do I get across free refills on fries and drinks? Well, here goes. Bottomless at Red Robin means free unlimited refills on the fries and sides that come with every burger or entree. That means free refills on steak fries, sweet potato fries, Yukon kettle chips, garlic fries, broccoli, side salad, soft drinks, iced teas, freckled lemonades, and even root beer floats. Offer doesn't expire until your appetite does. Whew, nailed it. Red Robin. Yum. Hello and welcome everyone to the Food Photography Corner. So we are recording this clubhouse room today so just be mindful that if you come up on stage your voice and question or comment may be included and or shared to our podcast um so again you can find the last four episodes on spotify including including our most recent episode which is how to navigate being ghosted by a client um so today we're chatting about how to land more consistent clients and we have a special guest candace from Eat More Cake by Candice, who is super, super knowledgeable on the topic, and we are super excited to have her here to share her knowledge with us. So thank you so much for coming, Candice. Uh, did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, my name's Candice, and I am a food photographer, recipe developer, and blogger of a dessert blog, Eat More Cake, and I'm also a business coach. So I recently, this week, launched my pitching course, which is called the Confident Pitch Program. And I should actually take a step back and explain. (laughs) Before I was a food photographer, which I've been doing for actually a year now this month, um, I spent about 10 years in corporate sales in different industries. So the tech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, really cutthroat sales industries. (laughs) So I went through a lot of extensive sales training and I've basically applied and transferred that knowledge and those processes and strategies um, into this program as well as just some of the free content that I share as well on my Instagram and Clubhouse. So we'll be going through some of that today, but thanks for having me. Okay, so I'll do a quick intro as well. My name is Makayla. I am a food blogger and food photographer as well. I just, um, I run the food blog, Flax and Sugar, and now Rosalind and I have um, the Food Photography Corner, which is a little podcast here that we're helping people connect with other creatives as well as navigate the world of food photography and making it a sustainable business as well. So every week we talk about different topics ranging from how to ignite creativity to contracts and landing more consistent clients more on the business side. So if you're interested, make sure you're following that Food Photography Corner house at the top left-hand corner as well. I'll pass it to Roslyn. Thank you so much. Yes. So hi, everyone. If you're new here, my name is Roslyn. I'm a full-time food photographer, recipe developer, and blogger as well. So I've been making a living and doing this full-time for over a year now. Um, And prior to that, I was working part-time and doing this all on the side. 
Um, but yeah, that's me. So let's just jump right into it. So again, today we're chatting about how to land more consistent clients. We're going to cover landing new clients and expanding on your existing client base. So when it comes to net landing new clients, you need to be willing to put in the work. And we kind of look at it like a four-step process, which involves research, awareness, outreach, and consistency. So the first thing is research. So you want to find brands to work with. You can pay attention to the brands you buy, um, brands at the grocery store, or you can go to an online grocery store and just browse all of their products and make notes of brands that you think you might want to work with. And then you're going to really want to learn about those brands. So go to their websites, read their about us section, their mission, their brand goals, etc. Um, you're basically just wanting to find a connection connection here between the brand that you're hoping to work with and your brand. So the second step is awareness. So you want to get your name in front of this brand now. So we share a bunch of tips on how to do this in our free guide, which you can find in my Instagram bio or Michaela's. Um, it's called Pitch Please Light. Or if you're listening to the podcast, um, there will be a link in the show notes for you. I just learned that you could do that and it was so cool. But <laughs> anyways... Uh, basically what we go over in there is like, you want to engage on Instagram and their social platforms. So follow, like, and comment, um, and basically just getting your name visible to that brand or somebody within that brand organization. So that's kind of like creating the awareness of who you are as an individual or as a business. And then beyond that, you're going to go into outreach. So again, in our free guide, we share the exact first message that we send to brands, basically looking for the best email address to send our full pitch to. So this makes for a warmer pitch versus like a very cold pitch because you've already been interacting um, with and been in contact with that brand through social media or other platforms that you choose to use. The last step is consistency. So we actually talked about this a bit last week, but you really want to be consistent. Um, Sharon is actually here. So she talked about, if you want to listen to our previous episode on the podcast, she talked about her schedule and how she plans it out. And there's a bunch of tips that a lot of people actually gave for just kind of staying on top of that and having your follow-up emails and just making a schedule that you can stick to. Um, because even if you don't land that client after your first set of pitch emails, you might land something down the line because you followed up monthly or quarterly. Um, you want to think of it as just like always staying top of mind for when a brand might have something that they require your services for, and you want to be the first person that they think of. Perfect. So I'm going to go through my, uh, top 10 tips, for um, landing more consistent clients, expanding on your current client base. I really love that you guys also mentioned how to land new clients because there are the strategies are diff very different and it's easy it's easier to compartmentalize the two. Um, landing new clients is definitely more involved and difficult because it's usually cold. Um, you're trying to uncover a need and then, upselling current clients, I call it upselling. It's the same thing as expanding on your current clients is definitely a lower hanging fruit, easier to convert if you do it right. So I've kind of created like a top 10 list that I'm going to share with you guys today of just things to keep in mind when you're working with clients from the very first interaction 
that will help um, expand on that client base, you know, once you've completed the work. So essentially tip one is focusing on elevating customer experience. And there's a lot of different nuances and ways that you can do this or approach elevating your customer experience. But one of the easiest ways that I have found is just creating a more efficient workflow. So for example, if you find that you're going back and forth constantly with emails and you have frequently asked questions that potential clients, whether it's in the stage of negotiation at that point, maybe they come back and they have, you know, you're, you're constantly getting the same questions or even after the fact, let's say they've signed the contract and then they're asking you questions about next steps. What, what can they expect? That's a really easy opportunity to create like a frequently asked question document that you can send to the client to review or just being able to anticipate what their questions might be so that you can proactively uh, communicate that to them prior to them asking. It's always a better experience when you can anticipate those um, and tackle them before they happen because then the client will view you as an expert and like you know your process really well and that they're taken care of essentially. Yeah. I did want to add something though, because I really, really liked what you just said about the frequently asked questions because I have noticed a trend previous, like recently in a part of my negotiation and multiple of my clients when we get to this stage are asking the same exact question. And I, it really honestly was a revelation I just had yesterday. And I'm was sitting there thinking, okay, well, this is, this is on me because I'm clearly not eloquently presenting this information or saying it in a way that's very clear for them to understand because it's not just one client who said this, it's multiple clients who are asking the same question. And it's not that I'm necessarily saying something wrong, but I just really love how you are now going to navigate that to even maybe like a, a document where there's a frequently asked question document just to help with maybe even the education piece or just to help smooth that process out. Because a lot of mine particularly are coming about usage fees as I'm like really focusing on and ranking up more of that as like, I definitely believe in it. And, um, so the, for me that I just think that that's a really great tip because you could add in that education piece of like, well, what is a usage fee and why is it important and all these things. So I just really, really love that tip. So I just wanted to add that because I'm definitely implementing that. That's a really good point. A lot of clients don't understand what that is. So if you don't have to explain it you can just have it written in a document, um, it's just much more effective and it's a better experience for them. And if you Think about like wedding photographers. You look at wedding photography, they're really good at doing this because one of the ways for them to land a client is to elevate their customer experience. Like what separates them, right? Other than the photography style, like you usually select your photographer based on the experience you're going to have with them and the trust that you can build with them. Um, and I think that there is no exception for us as well. Like as food photographers, it's the same concept, right? Like how can we elevate our client's experience working with us so that they can gain trust quickly and know that they're going to be taken care of. So it's the same idea. And you also have to consider brands are not always, they're not hiring photographers every day. So it's a completely new process, much like when you go and you hire a wedding photographer. I mean, it's a one-time thing. Um, for brands, obviously they're hiring more than just one time, but again, it's probably not something that they're very accustomed to and they just may not fully understand the pricing structure or 
um, the onboarding or what happens after I sign the contract, all of that. So um, going, okay, so tip two is keeping keeping the customer experience in mind with all of these tips. Um, tip two would be creating work that performs for the client. So let me explain because I know that sounds really obvious. We all want to create work that performs for the client. But in order for there to be alignment in, uh, in the client seeing the value and seeing that the work has performed, you first have to understand what metrics they're trying to hit. So what that means is if it's a sponsored post, like what analytics about the sponsored posts are, are important to that? Is it likes? Is it engagement? Is it views for a video? What exactly is it? Is it clicking the link? Um, if it's freelance work, I mean, again, what's their ultimate goal with hiring you to to capture imagery and create content for them. Um, and so one of the ways that I'm able to determine this is through um, sending the, a brand questionnaire that I've generated. And I think a lot of us are starting to use something similar. And it's essentially a document that I use to scope the project for each one of my clients the ideal scenario would be you jump on a discovery call with them, but if you can't get on a, on a phone call with them, because not all clients want to talk on the phone for some reason, <laughs> then you can send them this questionnaire, um, which is, again, trying to uncover where their specific needs are and just understanding what the deliverables will be for this particular project. Um, but again, this will also help you. Like one of the questions I ask is, what metrics they're trying to hit or what their ultimate goals are for hiring me um, so that you can keep that in mind when you're creating content and you can deliver upon that. So um, yeah. Do you guys want to add anything to that? Um, I just wanted to say, don't you also have like a free download Candice with the questionnaire um, that people can grab? Yeah, I do. I have a sample of the brand questionnaire. Um, it's It should still be linked in my bio. I can send you guys a direct link too for the podcast, but um, it should be linked in my bio on Instagram where you can download that. And then I've just revised it for my course. And that is like an added bonus for the course. And it's um, a lot more robust than the free version. So I just modified it for that as well. So there's really two places that you can get it. Awesome. Thank you. We will um, link it when we do the podcast. We'll put it in the notes as well. Um, And what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. It's a great – I think it's a great starting point anyways. So if anyone wants to grab it, just to get a general idea of the questions that you – can or should be asking brands prior to working with them just to kind of understand the full scope of the work before just jumping right into a partnership or collaboration. Um, Yeah, I definitely recommend looking at that questionnaire first, just to get an idea of that. So thank you, Candice, for offering that. I just wanted to ask something, Candice. How do you send this questionnaire? Like, is it sent in an attachment to the... a PDF attachment? Is it sent in the body of an email or do you link to a Google form? I've done all, all of the above and you can do any of them. So that's a really great question. You can either do it as a PDF, you could do it as like a Google, um, survey, if you will. I find that it's again, what can, what can, how can you make it easier for them? Right. A PDF is not ideal 
deal, but it works just fine. Um, I've talked about this before, but I use HoneyBook for everything and it's kind of my one-stop shop. So I've created, um, for those of you that don't know what HoneyBook is, it's basically an online, I don't even know what it's considered. It's, it's like an all-in-one platform where you can create your contracts, your proposals, you can send your invoicing, um, you can schedule calls with clients and like it connects to your Zoom account if you're doing a Zoom call. Um, it really captures like your pipeline. So any inquiry you get or any client that you're in communications with, um, I use that to send my survey because it essentially sends them a link. It's like a separate email, but it sends them a link and then they can easily just click on the document and just fill it out and then it gets sent back to me. I also love HoneyBook because you can see if they've read your email. So if you're sending contracts and you're like chomping at the bit to see if they (laughs) have opened it, you can see it through HoneyBook. It's amazing. And then you can follow up with them right after they view it or like a day later and just say, hey, checking in, see if you have any questions. It's a really awesome tool to like allow you to move the client through the sales process more effectively. So that's what I personally use. But PDF or Google Form works great too. I was just going to ask if you had an affiliate marketing, if you're an affiliate for HoneyBook, not that, not because you promote it all the time, but just because like you're, you literally have like, I've been saying that I'm going to get it. And that piece just like totally sold me. So if you did, I just wanted to support you as well as I think (laughs) other people potentially would want to as well. But because I, right now I use Google forms, which is okay, but just, Again, it's all about like streamlining, streamlining and getting everything as fast and efficient and just as much as you can, especially as an entrepreneur, because you're just doing so many things at once. So I love that it's all on one platform. I'm, I'm not an affiliate. They, um, I actually got grandfathered in, so it's like a monthly, monthly subscription. I do have a link that I've put in my course, but again, I don't get any kickback. Um, the only kickback they give you is like, I think a small discount on your subscription, but I got grandfathered in and I paid a one-time fee. So it's not going to help me at all. So I don't, I don't get anything. I just truly, I started using this six years ago when I was in the wedding industry, but it was like heavily marketed to, uh, wedding vendors and, um, it's evolved so much and it's really for just the creative industry now. So that's why I talk about it so much because it's also just beautiful and easy to use. Um, I have no idea though what it costs monthly. I'll be honest with you because I don't pay monthly, but I think it's pretty affordable from what I've like what I've seen. So, but thank you for asking. <laughs> Um, if you guys don't have anything to add, I'll go on to the third tip, which kind of overlaps with what we've already talked about with tip one, um, which is again, and I guess goes along with our conversation about HoneyBook, but creating a simple and professional workflow. So again, this is over communicating and managing expectations from the very first interaction. And also once they sign the contract and beyond that, and that's really what elevates customer experience, creating the fact uh, frequently asked question document, which we've already discussed. And then in terms of how you actually deliver the images, um, I know you guys have talked about pixie set. I use that as well. And it's a really great strategy because you can actually send them a gallery without the capability of downloading the images. 
um, and they can just favorite the images and you can add additional ones. And it's a really easy upsell opportunity because if they see additional images that they like, then they can easily request to purchase those. Um, is there anything you guys want to add though about how you guys use Pixie Set? Yes, thank you. Um, I just wanted to add a couple things. So I wanted to quickly go back to um, the questionnaire. I've mentioned it before, just in case anybody is not wanting to make the investment into HoneyBook just yet or whatever the case may be. I built a questionnaire based on uh, Kylie from Barley and Sage's recommendation just straight into my website. So in my emails, I just basically send a the link to the questionnaire and then they fill it out on my site and then they can of course like navigate they're kind of on my website so they can navigate throughout my website and see my work because my website is kind of like um, a portfolio so it's built into there and then once they submit it it goes directly to my email so I just wanted to quickly add that in case anybody wanted another way to do it as well um, and then second, yeah, Pixie Set. So we have talked about it a lot and I know that a lot of people have had success with it because you're basically, as Candace said, showing the brand a ton of images and a bunch of content and it makes it a bit more difficult for them to only choose three, for example, if those were the agreed upon deliverables. So um, at this point, if they want to purchase any other images, you would want a char- want to charge a licensing fee for those additional images, which we kind of got into before. And if you listen to our first um, podcast episode with Jen, she goes over all of this and licensing, but um, she recommended using Getty Image Calculator, which I now use all the time. Um, and it's great to get an idea of what you should be charging for licensing, Um, But be mindful that the rates on Getty Image Calculator gives you a national, like, number for national brands. Um, So if you're working with, like, a smaller local brand, you might not want to charge that full amount. But I will also say that as you expand and your business grows, you might actually charge even more than Getty Image Calculator tells you. um, Because I have a friend who basically told me that, yeah, it's too low for her at this point, even though it is licensing. Um, But yeah, just keep in mind, it's a great place to start, especially if you're charging under what Getty Image Calculator is recommending. You're probably charging too little. Um, But yeah, so it's a great starting point, as I said, for charging licensing and usage fees. And it has like a bunch of different platforms. So, and again, this goes back to that questionnaire is understanding the full scope of the work and asking all the questions in advance, because you're going to want to plug in all of these different things into Getty Image Calculator to get an idea. And yeah, that's all I wanted to add for that. The other great thing about Pixie Set is that Again, from a customer experience, if you're sending them a gallery and you're, let's say you're contracted for three images and you send them a gallery of eight or 10, um, you're also empowering them by giving them the choice of which images they want by allowing them to favorite. Let's say they only move forward with the three. That's fine. Um, but then they're able to favorite those images before you give them download capability and I just find it's a better experience for the client if they can choose the images. I don't know what other people do, though. This is just something that I've always done because I know if I were making that investment, I would want to choose the final images. Um, I don't know if everyone does that, but 
that's just another perk of, of using a system like Pixie Set. Um, but going on that topic for tip four is creating a mood board. And you can easily do this in Canva. I think a lot of us use Canva. Um, it's amazing. You can create any sort of document, beautiful, professional looking. Um, I haven't had to do a ton of mood boards. I actually leave it up to the client or I ask them if they would like me to create one. I factor that into my overall pricing as part of kind of like my creative fee or pre-production cost. Um, and so far, most of my clients have brand guidelines already outlined, like the marketing team already has their own document. So you can always ask them what they prefer. Um, I always say I can create a mood board to make sure that we're on you know, the same page in terms of styling and brand requirements, or if they already have something, I'll just request that they send it my way. And then we can discuss that um, on the kickoff call, which is tip five. Um, but before I move on to that, do you, either of you want to add anything to the Canva mood board tip? I just wanted to add something onto the letting the client choose the photo. I think that is so great. And I just was going to share a quick story because I had it come back to me in the opposite way, like not, not a great way, learning lesson way, um, because I selected what I felt was the best photos. This was, um, a few, like a while ago with a company. It was February, actually. It was during a Valentine's Day shoot. And I had selected the eight images that they had paid for, and I made the choice for them out of the images that I shot. And then one of the images that I didn't offer to them, I ended up putting on my blog because we had agreed upon a blog post as well. And the reason why I didn't share it with them is because I didn't feel like it was of the highest quality, my um, focal length, and it was just not quite in focus. Like there was just something a little off of it about it, but to me, and they like reached out to me and they're like, why didn't you let us see this photo? And I, I felt like embarrassed. Like I was like, oh no, like I should have. And th this is just, I'm, I'm sharing that because that was their favorite photo out of all the photos. And they didn't care that it didn't, it wasn't perfectly in focus. Like to them, this, that was the one they loved the most. And so it was very eye opening to me and a reminder that art is always in the eye of the beholder and it's giving them the experience of getting to choose what they find the most artistic and beautiful is really empowering. Like you're saying, and, um, you just, you, you won't know at least in the first partnership, exactly their taste. Um, I think after you develop a relationship, those things can, you can feel more confident in that, but I do really think that giving them the power to choose is a really, really great option. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I just love using it so much. I just wanted to add one more thing quickly uh, about Canva. Going back to what Candice was talking about, about creating mood boards. Um, I know we all use it, but in case anybody doesn't already use Canva for everything, because I use it for literally everything, um, I just wanted to add that it's super convenient and user-friendly and it's great for creating mood boards as Candice was talking about um, because as soon as you add images into Canva it actually um, gives you like all of the colors that are in that specific photo so it's really good for creating like a color palette um, if you're trying to uh, develop something for a brand like that so yeah just wanted to quickly mention that as well 
Yeah. So tip five is jumping on a kickoff call so that you can align with any other members of the marketing team. Sometimes we forget that the person that signed the contract is maybe not the person that you're working with. And I've had the experience where the person that I'm working with or communicating with on a daily basis or weekly basis about the shoot or just any other requirements is not the decision maker. And you want to make sure that the decision maker is also happy because they're going to be the ones that decide if you get to work with them again, essentially. I had to navigate this a lot when I worked in corporate sales. I was trying to work with C-level executives, but I rarely had access to them. So then I had to sell and pitch my product to the person underneath them. And so you have to realize that their motivation um, and their reason for existing at the company is very different than like their boss. Their boss is very concerned with like, the macro level of things performing, whereas like the individual contributor or maybe the social media manager or the person on the marketing team is concerned with like the deliverables going smoothly and all that. So just being mindful of that. And that's why it's so important to have a kickoff call, ideally with multiple members of the marketing team, especially if it's a large contract, you just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page before you shoot it eliminates reshooting and all of that. Um, so it, it, this kind of depends for me. I don't do a kickoff call with every client, but if it's a, like I said, a larger contract, um, I definitely do kickoff calls. And some of the things that you want to talk about are again, making sure you're, um, in alignment with the deliverables, any image requirements, branding requirements, prop requirements, um, and then getting a list if they didn't already provide this, a list of the requested images or a shot list, um, orientation of the images, all of that. I, ideally, again, you're kind of figuring this out before, but it, the purpose really is just to make sure that you're managing expectations for all members of the team that might be involved. Do either of you have anything to add or do you want me to go to tip six? Yeah. So I really love what you're saying about knowing like who you're speaking to and understanding the different roles of a business and how different people play different roles. I think that's, I mean, that's an important thing to keep in mind from phase one when reaching out to someone over social media and recognizing that the person you're speaking to there might not be the person that you're speaking to when you get into an email um, negotiations back and forth and all of that throughout the whole streamlining process. Like I, I just really enjoyed you speaking to that. And then I, would love the opportunity to get on a discovery call. I've only done two. So I know it's something that I want to do. I love using my voice to connect with people and I find it way easier than through email, but I do find it difficult to get people to agree to it. So my question to you is that, do you have any specific verbiage or tips um, to navigate the or to highlight the value of stepping onto that call to really encourage them to want to take that step that you use? Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult for in this industry in general. I was definitely more accustomed to discovery calls when I worked in a corporate atmosphere. I think it was just a little bit more common. Um, but yeah, it is it is challenging. And I think it starts with recognizing that not every client will want to get on a discovery call. And again, it depends on how warm the lead is. So I think 
before suggesting a discovery call, it starts with sending some sort of value to the client in your pitch. So clients or prospects are not going to get on a call with you if they're like, I don't understand the purpose of this, or I don't really understand how you can help me. So the first step is in your pitch, in your initial outreach, is to connect some sort of value to the client. To go back to what you ladies were saying earlier, that's where the research is really important is because you're trying to uncover maybe a gap in their marketing strategy or an area that you can serve them um, where they might need your services. So like that's the whole purpose of getting a response. And a pitch email is being able to align that by giving them a few ideas on how you can help them. And if they then buy into that value or they can see how you potentially are trying to help them, it's easier to get them on a discovery call because they're like, okay, now we need to just kind of fine tune what that means exactly. Um, And so, I mean, I'll give you an example. And again, it's not like you have to get on a call. It is definitely a more effective strategy to close the client. Um, But That's why the brand questionnaire is also designed to be just sent via email if you have to. Um, But the verbiage that I use is I just explain to them my process. And I just say, I mean, I've had multiple times where they say, we don't have an opportunity, send me your media kit and your rates. And I think we all experience that. Um, And that's really hard to navigate because at that point you're like, okay, this is a lost opportunity. I mean, you send them your rates, you send them your media kit and chances are they're not really going to do anything with it. Um, Maybe they'll keep you on file for future campaigns, but the goal is really to get them to think of your services in a way that can benefit them. Like you're trying to come up with an idea for them that they haven't already thought of. So essentially explaining what your process is by saying, you know, I don't have a rate card or I don't, you can send them your media kit as long. I wouldn't suggest putting your rates on there, but just explaining that you don't send rates until you fully understand the scope of the project and that your goal is to help your clients um, help to help them. I'm trying to think of the exact verbiage on the spot, but to help them essentially um, reach their marketing goals. And the best way for you to align your services is to jump on like a, just make it sound really easy, like a 15 minute call. I just would really like to understand maybe where your strategies are for the rest of the year Um, So I can make the best recommendation for my services to help you accomplish that. So you're like coming from a place of service to them rather than I'm a food photographer and I want to work with you that there's, there's little value in that. So I hope that answers your question. I know it was a little bit long winded, but it starts by taking a step back and ask and looking at what you're sending them initially and the value that you're showing them from the beginning. Love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. So tip six is um, under promising and over delivering. Again, this kind of ties back to customer experience. Um, But ask yourself like what you can offer them. And this is especially important for first time clients, what you can offer them that's an additional value that they didn't expect. So there's a lot of different ideas and I'm not saying to work for free or to give them something for free. It's more like, if it's something that you're already doing and doesn't require a ton of additional work, how can you just give that to them without them expecting it? Um, And again, it's not something you do every single time necessarily. Maybe it's like, okay, 
an additional image or um, a story shout out or something like that. But I just actually did this with a client that I landed a few days ago and something that I, that we discussed on our discovery call was that they just weren't utilizing stories in the best way. They were just basically resharing consumer content, which doesn't really get any engagement (laughs) and it doesn't have a call to action. It's just like, here's our product and someone bought it. So something we discussed on the call that would be meaningful that for them would be to also look at creating a series of stories once they launched their blog that would increase engagement. So I came up with the suggestion of doing stories with polls or like a this or that question seems to do well in terms of a, you know, recipe idea. Um, and then that was something that I was, I knew would be meaningful to them. So when we were in negotiations, I suggested that and I was like, you know what, as a one-time courtesy and as a thank you for, you know, becoming a new customer, I would love to throw in one story series for you guys for one of the recipes or something. So something really simple that you know, won't take you a ton of extra time. That's just going to, um, elevate the experience for them, like right off the bat. But I'm curious if either of you ladies have other ideas or anything else that's worked um, that's kind of on this topic. Yes, I do. I can add something. (laughs) I um, really, really, really love this tip though. Uh, It's probably one of my favorites because it's going to be what really helps you shine and stand out, especially when they're working with multiple people. It's going to be something that you're really like going to be different for and I think that, well, to start, one of the first things is I always try to be very quick with my responses to my emails. Like that's a way that I over-deliver because I'm just very quick to get back to them and I'm my communication's really clear. So I think that that's another thing that they, that companies will be so grateful for just knowing that like if they need you, that you can like get to them quickly. Another thing is some, I have offered or done multiple times a rush, like a, a rushed order. So whatever your typical turnaround time is for something. And then if a client comes to you and like you're in negotiations, but then what has happened is it was like coming up on Super Bowl and we hadn't finished anything, but we had discussed it. And I was like, well, I'm still more than happy to get this done by the time that Super Bowl. And I did add a rush fee still, but just being available to do that was showing them that like I still will go like above and beyond to try to get that done for them to meet their needs for this deadline. So that's another way. And then I have a client who utilizes my images as a banner on their website. And it is a long, skinny, very weird sized banner that goes on the top of their website. And I noticed this because we were chatting about where they use the images and at the beginning. And then as, as just a thank you and what I do for them is again in Canva, because Canva's greatest, uh, you can set your exact pixels of what are, or size of what you need the image to be. And I just have that exact image size saved and I will just drop in the banner image for them. And then it's sent over to them in the collection of images every month, which just takes out that additional step for them to have to resize and optimize that image for them when they're going to put it on their blog or website. And 
that's just a really simple thing that I can do to help them. And like you said, it doesn't, these things that you think about doing something that is for that over delivery piece, they don't have to be things that take a ton, a ton of more time. And it is making you work way harder. Like it, it, this is already saved in my Canva, the size now, all I do is like upload the image and drag it in. It maybe takes three minutes, maybe. And to them, it saves them so much just time and hassle and they just know it's coming every month now. So just kind of thinking outside the box, there's so, so many ways you could do this. Um, But those are a couple that I've done and suggest. I love that example. That's such a great one. Um, The other thing too is like how just be mindful of how you're delivering that message to them because it's way more impactful for them to know that it's not a normal thing that you do. So if you tell them like, this is a one-time courtesy as an onboarding for you know, or as a thank you for being a new customer, I would love to do this, do this for you at no additional cost so that they know there's usually a cost associated, but you're doing it at no additional cost. Like this is if you're going to add on an additional service or additional image or something like that. Um, we use this strategy all the time when we were closing clients, I just used it and closed a really big contract. It literally worked. So, um, they, but again, communicating it in a way where you're like, this is something I normally charge for because you would normally charge for it. Um, and it's also managing expectations that you're not going to continue adding on services. It's a one-time courtesy and it's a really great closing tactic if somebody's on the fence. So just keep that in mind as well. Um, okay. So going on to, are we on seven? <laughs> I'm losing track. Tip seven, um, sending them analytics after you've worked with them. So this works really well for sponsored work. Um, you can send them. I know, Michaela, you have a report card, I think you call it, that you send them afterwards. Anything that's showing them analytics of how something performed or just, you know, if you have something on your blog, share with them how it performed on your blog. Um, it just reinforces the value of why they hired you in the first place, and it will increase the chances that they'll hire you again. Um, another resource that I've used a few times is called Influence Kit, which is where you can input, I think it connects directly to your Instagram or any of your other social accounts, social media accounts, and it actually pulls the analytics for you, and then you can send that data or that information kind of in, I guess, like a report card format, um, to the client. So I would definitely say this is really good for sponsored work. I don't know what other people do for freelance work. It's a little bit more difficult, I think, but, um, yeah, Michaela, do you want to talk about the report report card that you send? Yeah, I would say that it's more structured slightly towards sponsored work in the, um, effect that, Uh, it's three or it's four pages long. The first page is just a cover page with an image of yourself. And then the second page is going to have some images from the partnership and then talking about the analytics from the sponsored post, but also like across multiple media platforms, such as Pinterest and your blog traffic and giving the date that the blog was posted up until then, because as we know, like blog traffic it gains speed and can pick up more views over time where not so much on an Instagram post, it kind of has like a a shorter lifespan. So it is important to definitely put the dates 
on there for the blog post piece. Uh, I also want to throw in just real quick that if you do a sponsored blog post, this is a great thing to keep in a calendar or something to send you a reminder. So to revisit where those page views are and how that blog post is doing because this can be another thing that you utilize to encourage or entice them to work with you again. So let's say you created a really great Christmas cookie recipe with a butter company last year. And as we start coming into the holiday season this year, you see that blog post taking up really big traffic. You make a story pin on Pinterest. It goes viral. This is a, like, in my opinion, this is a great time to reach back out to that company and be like, have you seen like wonderful news? Look at this blog post that we worked on together last year. It's seeing such amazing things happening this year. I would love to see how we can work together again in this holiday season. So it's, it's another way you can do that within that kind of report card thing. And then the, the last page of that report card, which is my favorite and what I really, really, really think is important is that thank you. It's like a thank you card. And I am just such a big believer that like, we have to remember again, that that person behind the email is a real human being. And the negotiations are happening with a person who probably has like, you know, a dog and hobbies and a favorite ice cream flavor and like all these things. And while you want to be professional, you also want to recognize and honor that person. So in my thank you card, it's not just like a thank you for working with me. Like I really try my hardest to call out something particular and specific, as specific as you can be about the person, not just the brand, like that's included too, but the person like, ah, Candace, I really love that you always get back to me within 24 hours and my product arrived exactly on time when you said it would. And I knew I could count on you like something that's just so, so specific to them because like they're working really hard and it's nice and they feel good when they know that their hard work is being seen too. So I just would encourage you to put that in your report card as well. I wanted to quickly add that, um, yeah, even though your report card, because uh, I also have the template uh, that Michaela has on her blog, so she actually has a template that you can purchase if you want to create one for yourself. Um, but yeah, so I have that, and I've actually used it for um, freelance work as well. I just kind of like take out the um, analytic sections and then just create like a title, a different title where it says report card. And then like, thank you. And then I'll just kind of like condense the pages. And then I also did like a gallery just to kind of show them again, the images they got and kind of um, Canva has great options for like frames where you can just create an easy gallery and just drag and drop the images into it. So I just do like a full page little gallery thing. Um, And then yeah, the thank you. And then the last page is kind of like a invitation to work together again. So I still like using that same template. I just kind of take out the analytics. So I just wanted to quickly mention that because it is still really beautiful and nice to send that thank you after. So good. I love everything you guys said. Um, it also gives them something tangible, uh, to look back on. So if they're, you know, the person that you're, that you worked with, maybe they have to convince their manager, um, to work with you again, or they have to convince their manager that they need some sort of content or 
they need budget for a campaign. It's a really easy, tangible way for them. And I love, Rosalind, that you put the images in a gallery that's so smart because it's basically like, this is what I did for you. They don't have to go back and pull those images from, you know, however they're using it. They can just see it on that that card. Um, that's genius. That's really smart. I haven't tried that yet, but I'm going to start doing it. Um, okay. So going on to tip eight, which is, I think such a good segue is striking while the iron is hot. So again, the way that like the most effective way is to just send them this report card or whatever you want to call it. Thank you. Follow up right away. I mean, what, if it's a sponsored post, obviously you need a little bit of time for the data and the analytics to come back. But once a job's complete, I would reach out within a couple of days and just show them whether how it performed or just showing your gratitude for working with them. Um, this just keeps you top of mind and, you know, before they move on to another project or another task, you know, they're juggling a lot of different things being on a marketing team. Um, it's not just working with food photographers or freelance, uh, photographers. So that's why I always say strike while the iron's hot. It just increases your chances. Um, which is really smart too, that like going back to Rosin's point where she adds on, you know, an incentive to further your contract, or maybe it's long-term pricing, a discount, um, which is my, my next tip actually, which is offering a discount for long-term contracts. This could be like a three month contract, a six month contract, an annual contract. I haven't done annual. I do three to six months typically, and offering them a discount, but again, showing them what your normal pricing would be and then showing them what the discounted pricing would be for long-term contracts. Another strategy would be if you know maybe they're not motivated by price, like maybe price to them is not going to be the motivating factor for working with you long-term. Maybe they're motivated by analytics or maybe they're motivated by the additional services that you can provide. So like I had one brand where they, I knew that it would be valuable to add on a blog post. So I, instead of offering them a discount, I said I would add on a blog post, maybe at like a discounted rate or at no rate. But the thing is you're really factoring it into your pricing. It's just the way you're presenting it is that you're showing them that it's either discounted or it's free, but it's not actually, if that makes sense. Yes. I just wanted to add on just to kind of clarify what you mean by that, because I think when we hear discount, we think that if we're charging $100 that we'll say, oh, we're going to discount it for a three-month contract and it's only $80. But that was under the understanding that $100 was where your like bottom line was. But we actually want to pitch that one-time partnership higher and so that we're still meeting our bottom line even at the discounted rate at the three-month contract. And we kind of went more into this and how to understand pricing structure and break it down more with Jen from Cashmere and Cocktails, but she actually has a really great now guide that helps you understand how to like price yourself and figure out your pricing structure. So that would be something beneficial to look into so that you 
our understanding. Like this is, I know you're saying this, Candice, but I just thought I would throw that in there. So that way, um, if somebody was like a little confused on how that works to add that. And then I just also wanted to add that in that report card, I said that the final page was the thank you because it, it is, but you could also have the final page. There's, there's four pages and depending on how you want to do it, the third page or the fourth page could be thank you or this continuation of the partnership. So it's a page where you just encourage them to want to join a longer partnership. And so it's just talking about the benefits of working together long-term and then offering them some sort of incentive, which is basically what we're talking about. And I definitely think that you should include that. And I love when you're talking about like striking when the iron's hot and sending that over soon because they just had the experience with you and it's fresh. So all super great. I'm going to pass it back to you, Candice. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. You said it in a much better way. Yeah. So, okay. Tip 10 is expressing urgency. So again, I kind of have like four things that I try to check off or like four main objections or reasons why clients may not move forward um, with a contract or maybe a long-term contract. And one of them is like, why work with you again? And why now? Because they just did, right? So they may not need your services right away. So if you can express urgency and a really easy way is just to say that your calendar is filling up, especially as we enter summer and then Q4 with it being holiday content. Most of us are busier during that time. So just saying that you're really wanting to work with them again, you give first priority for um, clients that you've worked with on, on your calendar and that you would love to secure you know, another partnership with them um, before you work with other clients. So just making them feel special and like you're doing them a favor because you are in high demand is just kind of like a mindset shift that sometimes is required for them to take action right away versus three months to six months down the road. Um, so that's my last and final tip. I wanted to add something to this. Another um, thing that I have offered that I've found a few of my clients have taken me up on the offer. So if they choose to take a three-month contract or let's say, you know, they, let's just say they chose to continue a partnership and they want to do a three-month contract, but they want a 4th of July piece of content, but they just really don't need anything in August, but they definitely want something for September and November. Like I have allowed a grace period of the three months to fall within a five-month period. So if you want to skip a month or take a pause on a month and find a month that is better suiting for your marketing goals for a certain holiday, or maybe you have a new product coming out or something within that time frame. that it's okay that they don't run in consecutive months to months back to back, because maybe it's just better serving for them to take a month off for some reason. And I, and I, I didn't really, this is something newer and I actually have had a couple clients request this and, and say that it was really helpful for them because they just, there was a time period within that frame where they didn't need something, but they needed something the month after. And so that's just something that you could, could consider offering as well. I think that we are going to ask, open the floor up uh, and ask any questions that you may have. Sean, thanks for coming up. What's your question? Hi. Um, yeah. So my question is actually in regards to the whole usage fee. How do you deal with clients who, let's say they have a couple of bids coming in and they say, um, you're the only one who charges a usage fee, but the other ones aren't. Why is that? And how do you kind of explain that to them? Okay, first off, we are going to host a room that is dedicated pretty much primarily to usage fees coming up soon because this is something that 
I'm learning, still learning that I think a lot of people could benefit from. And there's just a lot of like questions surrounding this. So I know that you're not alone in asking this question. So thanks for coming up and asking it. Um, I, to start, I think that the piece is, it comes from a place of just education and coming across as genuine and kind as you can be through that education process, which if we circle back to the beginning, I really loved how Candace talked about that frequently asked questions, uh, piece of content that you could send to them. So this could be something that you create in a document that just explains to them, um, what these frequently asked questions are and like that could include what a usage fee is and why we have these fees um, in place to get when when they specifically say that you're the only one that is asking for this up against other bids that's very tricky and I have also ran into this um, and ran into it frequently and it's unfortunate because that that is our goal of why we're in this room, why we're doing these things is so that that wouldn't be a response because hopefully everyone is understanding what these are and then across the board people are starting to charge these so that we're running in not running into that. But in the interim while we're all still learning and it is happening, it's unfortunate that there are people who don't know and this is that's what's causing this imbalance. And so what I did is I just went back to the education piece and I explained how one piece of content for them is going to serve them and serve their business over this period of time. And then I circled it back to their goals saying like, your goal with this partnership was to increase brand awareness with this and this and this. With this piece of content, you will be able to reach hundreds of thousands of people and increase your sales, brand awareness. And I just kept like reiterating the value, just like speaking back to the value, back to the value, back to the value. That's what I did. But I would love to hear what everyone else, um, if they've experienced this or how they navigated it, because it is, it is very tricky. So I would love to hear anybody else's input. So for me, I often just don't really like separate my fees if that makes sense. So I won't say like, this is my production fee or my creative fee. And then this is the usage and this is whatever. I I usually just try to build it into the one price after I understand the full scope of the work and where they're going to be using the images. I just say for your requested deliverables, this is the rate. Um, And I kind of like reiterate all of those requested deliverables again, just to kind of show them how much they are getting. So being very like explicit with each thing. So content creation, usage on social web, usage on wherever ads or whatever it is that they're needing uh, your content for and everything all together. I just put on their recipe development and then I say for all of this, it is X amount. But and then on top of that, I think it kind of makes sense in terms of when we're doing it through Pixie Set and we're upselling because if you know what I mean, like if um, if the agreed upon deliverables were three images and they want more than three after you send over that gallery, I think it would make sense that you would charge. And I think maybe they don't have to necessarily understand that you're just charging the usage fee at that point. But essentially, that's what it is because you're no longer developing the recipe again or shooting that content again when you're kind of upselling in the the pixie set stage. You're just kind of like, in order for you to use that content, you need to pay 
an additional amount. Otherwise, you just don't get those extra images beyond the the agreed upon contract amount or deliverables, if that makes sense. So basically, I just don't really like break it down where I say for usage is X amount versus content creation is X amount. So yeah, that's that's my advice. Just don't kind of like categorize it in that way. I actually do a combination of what you both said. <laughs> so I'm just going to echo that. Um, in my contract, I mean, yeah. So problem one, there are people who either maybe they're not just separating it. So then the client thinks that they're not paying for the usage fee, but they actually are. It's just factored into their overall cost. So like that could be one strategy. Or there are people who are just not charging it because they're newbies and they don't know that they need to charge it. Um, But yes, always going back to the value of like what they're getting when they move forward with you. And then maybe try not separating it. I just have my pricing really simple and I have a creative fee. And then I'll kind of outline what is within the creative fee um, so that they can see everything that's included. Not as a line item, just more as a description. Um, And I'll incorporate the usage in there. I have had some clients where maybe they just want one image where they use it for something other than social media or web and it's for actual advertisement. So I will add like a separate usage fee for that particular image, but that's usually outlined in the contract, how they can specifically use the image. And if there's anything, um, if they want to use the image for anything outside of that, then that's where there would be an additional fee so that they kind of have that expectation up front. But maybe just if you're separating it, maybe just try showing it as one fee. I just have create a fee and then expenses as a line item, um, which is how I present my pricing, but maybe try presenting it in a different way and see if you have different results. Thank you. Um, those one, those tips, all those tips really help a lot. Because uh, I'm actually running into that issue right now. I'm kind of dealing with the prospect on, on the project. And one thing is they have other people bidding in and saying like, oh, yeah, so you get to go ahead and keep all of the, the footage and it's yours and it's, there's no usage fee. There's no usage rights. And I already explained it to them prior in the discovery call, um, like what the usage fee was and what it's for and how long it would be for. And, um, yeah, that's just kind of like they're their rebuttal against me is they're saying that the other ones aren't talking about the usage fee or they get to keep all of the, the footage afterwards. So that's kind of, that was what um, I was kind of running into. Okay, Sean. So what I would do at this moment is I would try to sweeten the deal with something additional that makes it more enticing for them that isn't taking away from your value. So that would be like those extra add-on things that don't take you that much time that you can try to say, I understand that these people are, you know, that you've received offers for this, this, and this. How would you feel if um, additionally you received this or additionally this was included or those sort of things to try to navigate it into like, once again, highlighting how much value you're providing, your willingness to go above and beyond. And that's how I would, that's, that's the angle that I personally would take. 100% agree. And I also just want to add in a polite way, you can instill a little bit of fear by saying, if they're not being explicit about how they can use the content, then technically, unless they're signing over full rights, and that's outlined in the contract, technically, the photographer can come back and charge them a fee at any point in time for usage of of those images. I mean, again, unless they're signing over full rights to the contract, which I highly doubt they're they're doing because their fee would probably be exponentially higher than yours unless you're agreeing upon shared. So I would just maybe explain it in that way that like, Hey, they could actually add this fee later. Um, and there's a risk to you in that. So, 
you know, this is my pricing up front. And then I would absolutely add something to kind of sweeten the deal. That would be meaningful for them. Yes, that risk reward. Oh, see, here is a little bit dangerous, but working with me, it's very secure. And on top of the security, you additionally could offer this. Like to me, that would be a no brainer for them is what I mean. Like they will just totally see it as that. Hope that helped answer your question, Sean. Thanks for coming up and asking that because I think that's a question that we all are, we have run into or inevitably will run into. And like I said, I personally would love to host a room soon where we um, chat more in depth about usage fees, just about that. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, Hanny, is that how you say it? Are you there? Do you have a question? Yes, hi. Uh, first, would like to thank you all for your time and your uh, valuable information. Uh, actually, uh, it's just uh, I missed the name of the podcast on Spotify where you store your recordings. So, if you just can you repeat it for for us, please? Yeah, it's just the Food Photography Corner. Okay, uh, I will try again. Thanks. Ling Ling, did you have a question you'd like to ask? Yeah, hi. Thank you. Um, so I'm currently working with a brand for product photography and I had them fill out the questionnaire. I was kind of hoping to see what style of images they were looking for, but all they wanted, all they said that was that to check out the current pictures. Um, obviously, they had a previous photographer who took the pictures that are currently on their website right now. So I don't know if the reason why they're asking me to photograph the products is because they like my style better or something. So how could I get a better understanding of what they're expecting? Would this be like a good time to spend, send over a mood board of what I envision the images would look like? That's where I would go with it. I think that to just get clarification on exactly what they like. To me, when they send back saying, take a look at what we have on our social or website, they're saying that that's generally what they like. Um, otherwise, because if it wasn't what they like, they would say, well, this is what we have, but we want to go in a different direction. So I think as a generalization, what they're currently Currently, what they currently have is close to or is the style that they're looking for and perhaps meaning mostly in terms of like back, backdrop, um, background, styling and color composition. Uh, composition could be a little different, but mostly in the lighting, is it light and bright or do they use dark um, wood tones, warm tones? So mostly those big the big factors are probably going to remain the same. But it would not be a bad thing by any means to create a mood board um, for this particular project and say, this is what I envision for working with you. And I wanted to send this over to have crystal clear clarification that this is going to meet your standards and exceed your expectations as we move forward. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. Sorry, yeah, I just wanted to add um, that I... I don't think you necessarily need to send it to them, though. Like, I think that's totally up to you. Um, but you could also just create it for yourself if you would feel more comfortable having something to kind of, like, refer to when you're going into those shoots. So just creating that mood board and, you know, like, putting the images that they currently have on their feed into Canva and getting a general idea of the color palette and things as Mikaela was mentioning, like the backgrounds and stuff like that. So if you just need a bit more like visual um, understanding for yourself going into it, then yeah, that's what I would suggest. But I think that if they don't really, for me personally, if they don't really ask for anything in particular and they kind of just say, base it off of our current feed, I, I don't, focus too much if they're not giving very clear expectations I kind of just do 
my own thing in terms of uh, getting a general understanding, but then allowing myself to just be creative and creating what I feel like will look good. So I think there's a bit more freedom in that as well. And just to add, I would put in a reshoot fee in your contract. Just like it protects you in case they come back and they're like, this is not what we expected or this isn't what we wanted. I find that it helps eliminate risk for you so that you can charge um, something if you have to reshoot. I mean, the goal is to not reshoot, obviously, but again, it's just protecting you in case there is like some people, everyone kind of does the reshoot fee differently. You could do it as like a percentage of the total cost of the contract. Um, it's really up to you what you think is comfortable for if you were to have to fully reshoot something or even maybe it's just one image, something like that. But I would have that in the contract. May I ask Candice what your price, like not the exact numbers, but the system and the formula you use to come to your reshoot fee? Yeah, I listened you know, I haven't had to do a reshoot luckily, but I listened to a couple of other like big food photographers that recommended charging 75% of the total cost. So not like a hundred percent, but still quite high if they were to reshoot because you're really trying to eliminate having a reshoot. Um, but you're also, you want it to be, you want it to be substantial enough to where the client's like, okay, we need to avoid this at all costs. Thank you so much. Yeah. I haven't had that experience and I hope to never, because I think that especially if people are taking all of your tips and following your like confident pitch program, especially with the brand questionnaire and like really getting all of that foundation laid correctly, hopefully that would never happen. But yeah, I really, really, really appreciate you saying to add that in because that is great to cover your bases. So thanks for that. We are incredibly grateful. I know I am grateful. I know Rosalind and Candace are grateful for everybody who came and took the time out of their really busy days to be here, to learn something, to contribute. I especially appreciate everyone who gets up on stage and asks questions because those are burning questions that probably at least one other, if not many other people have within um, their mind and they just didn't jump on stage to ask it. So it really helps everybody learn and improve by asking questions. Um, big, huge thank you to Sean and Rosalind for recording, setting up and publishing the podcast. It's called the Food Photography Corner on Spotify and it usually takes around a week for the week prior to come up live on the podcast. So if you missed something today and you want to re-listen, um, it'll probably be up in about a week or so, but there is a few already up there if you want to head over and check them out. And big, huge, huge, huge thank you to Candice. You are so amazing. I'm so grateful to have you in my corner of friendship, and I just think you're incredibly, incredibly talented and wise. So thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come on here and chat with us as well. And I hope you have a great day, everyone. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys learned something today. Um, and yeah, the best way to, to get information about the course is through my Instagram. Um, and again, it's open now until July 1st. So next Thursday, the cart closes. But um, And then reach out to me anytime on Instagram too via DM. I love just connecting with people and, and helping. So thank you guys for having me. Same. DMs are always open. I love sending you creepy voice notes. No, I'm just kidding. They're not that creepy, but I do love sending voice notes and we would love to help in any way as well. So have a wonderful day, friends.
in the time before AT&T Fiber Internet. Me video call is all stuttery. Does me face look okay on your end? A monster! Please, a monster! In the time after AT&T Fiber Internet. I love having 25 times faster upload speeds than cable. Yeah. The dawn of a better internet era with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Check eligibility at att.com slash getfiber. Based on Internet 1000 wired upload connection speed versus major cable providers. One gig service with uploads of 35 megabits per second. Speeds vary. Not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. You don't own me. Booking a room with two beds at a hotel isn't exactly your idea of a romantic getaway. Orbitz gets it. Visit orbits.com slash pride to find hotels that welcome you to travel as you are. Orbits, travel as you are. So just let me be myself to say and do whatever I Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. This is the Profit From Legal Podcast. I'm your host, Noel Bagwell. Whether you've listened to the podcast from the first episode or you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. The Profit From Legal podcast is brought to you by Executive Legal Professionals, PLLC, also called Executive LP, an innovative virtual law firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. At Executive LP, we work with businesses to transform their legal support from a cost center to a profit engine. And that's what we talk about on this podcast. Our semi-monthly regular episodes and frequent interviews with interesting professionals bring our audience of savvy entrepreneurs and business decision makers useful insights for getting the most out of their legal support. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be right back after this brief commercial message. Trendy new buzzwordy business book or a modern classic from a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of exponential business growth. It's your call. Discover Good Profit by Charles Koch. Timeless truths. Buzzword free at goodprofitbook.com. Welcome back to another episode of Profit from Legal. I'm your host, Noel Bagwell. We've got another great interview episode for you today. And today my guest is Rabia Kuhn, a project manager, comic, activist, and nonprofit volunteer who on her podcast, More Than Work, talks with guests about the pursuit of shared passions and hobbies or work that reflects their lives. Uh, She's just a wonderful person to talk to. I think you're going to get a lot out of the podcast today. So welcome to Profit from Legal, Rabia. Hey, thanks, Noel. Thank you. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone just a little bit about you? I know I gave a brief introduction, but what should people know about you? Well, I I do a lot of different things, I guess, from my intro. First and foremost, I think I just feel like my purpose is to serve others. And I just do it in different ways through comedy, making people laugh through a podcast, telling people stories. And um, I'm also in school right now getting a public leadership credential at Harvard Kennedy School because I want to further that and be able to contribute to organizations that are service-based. That's really great. 
So in your work as a, can we talk about your work a little bit as a project manager? Because um, I think for my audience, which is you know primarily entrepreneurs, small business mm-hmm. owners, decision makers in businesses, they probably are, are interested in your work as a comic and an activist in that. But from a practical boots on the ground standpoint, maybe uh, most interested in your, your relevant expertise as a project manager. Why does promoting profitability in the projects that you manage on a project to project basis, why is that essential or important? Or do you think that's the most essential thing? I think that it's I think it's important. I think that you can really as a business owner, if you're hiring, for example, I work at a, as an IT cr- contractor. So people hire my company to build a product for them, usually a website, and they want it to do something. So I think the profitability part comes in because you think of what transactions you want your website to do. And it could be e-commerce, like you want them to buy something, or it could be like on your website, you have the scorecard, for example. So a transaction there would be somebody inputting their information and filling in the scorecard and getting the information back, right? Um, On other websites, it could be other things. And so I think it really comes down to understanding the purpose and what you want your product to do and then being able to really clearly state that so that someone can build it. Because a lot of times people will say they want something done and they won't have it narrowed down and they'll also want 28 other things and they'll start sending a, someone like me on a wild goose chase trying to figure out which thing you know they want to have built and then eventually they end up over budget, not on time. And basically without resources. And so I think it's important for people to really be focused and try to do one or two important things at a time. And that will then reflect in like them getting returns on what they're doing, if that makes sense. What you said reminded me of Greg McEwen in his great book, Essentialism, where he's talking about not going a millimeter in a million different directions, but instead picking one direction and going as far as you can with that, that I'm hearing you say that the real value of profitability is it gives you something to laser focus on. Mm-hmm. And anything that would take away from profitability might lead to mission creep in your projects and you might not end up where you intended to go. Yeah, that's fair to say. So what are the big mistakes that you see clients making whenever you're you're managing the project? I mean, you, you alluded to a couple there, but um, are there any like mistakes of thinking or mistakes of behavior in particular that lead to those outcomes you mentioned? Yeah, definitely. I think. One thing is just in choosing the partner to work with. It's important to find someone who is going to help you and not be afraid to tell you, hey, you're going down the wrong path or there's a better way to do this. And it's also important to work with someone who you can trust and you say, this is what we want done. And you let them do that. Uh, One thing that's super difficult for especially in technology is that you'll end up someone will come to you with a solution, not a problem to solve. They'll come to you and say, this is going on and this is what we want done, but that might not be the best way to solve the problem. And so I think people don't find partners that will tell them that. They just find partners who will just blindly execute and won't ask them questions. I think also accountability is very important. And what I often have seen in different places is that there's no accountable person on a project team out like from the client perspective or from the business owners perspective, there are like stakeholders and business owners, but someone needs to really be the one who owns the decisions, who understands the vision and who can articulate it clearly. So someone else can take care and manage a project to build it. And I think 
especially the accountability part and just knowing who owns what and who to go to. Cause if there's no one there to answer a question and there's no one there to say yes or no, it's really hard on other people to try to like execute on a vision and make it happen. So I think those are really important things. Yeah. Whenever I write service agreements for, um, you know, for clients who are there, who are hiring independent contractors or companies to provide a solution, there's always that section of the contract where the service provider and the client each establish a representative, like an authorized representative mm -hmm. to speak on their behalf. So when you're using a well-written contract, that's almost baked into the cake, that kind of accountability that it, it goes through this person. They're the authorized representative for the business and they're the ones who are responsible for um, either making those decisions or going back internally on their side of the deal to get the decision made to get an answer and then present it to the other person so that you kind of have, I mean, it's awful to say, but you kind of have these bottlenecks, but uh, the bottlenecks are not necessarily productivity bottlenecks or accountability bottlenecks. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Bottlenecks, probably the wrong word to use. Well, yeah, but yeah. And they're not always a bad thing, you know, because if you're getting to a right decision, because it gets really costly the minute you start doing something just completely off or that's not within the initial scope and then you don't ever achieve the scope. It's um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term gold plating as it applies to. Software. And no, uh, not as it applies to software. I've, I've not heard that. I mean, generally, I can conceptualize what I think that means. But can you unpack that a little bit for the audience? Yeah, sure. So gold plating is the idea that, say, for example, there's a website and someone says, oh, I want to be able to show pictures of the product from four angles and I want people to be able to buy it. So that's the objective. But then a developer might say, oh, well, I can actually do this thing where it's like a 3D modeling of the product and they the person can customize the product and do all this cool stuff. And they build something that is really awesome. But they didn't actually achieve what the client wanted or needed, which was they have something in black and white <laughs> and that's it. And you can buy one of those two things. They've created this kind of amazing experience for the customer that doesn't achieve the goal of the actual product that they were supposed to build. And basically now there's something that's not useful because they gold plated it. They just kind of threw a bunch of extra stuff on there that looked really great. It might seem really cool, but it's not doing what you wanted. And right. Like a luxury car showroom for an economy car, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't need that. Or it's even like saying, yeah, I need to buy a bicycle. And then, you know, maybe your someone's spouse says, oh, I want to get a new bicycle so I can ride to the store. And then the partner buys them like an e-bike that's all fancy and stuff. And they're like, no, I just really wanted <laughs> <laughs> this bike. And I now I can't <laughs> use this e-bike for some, you know what I mean? It's just kind of right. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw I'm kind of laughing because I saw there's a, a British guy who's like a crazy inventor dude who has a channel on YouTube and he had built this um, jet bicycle. It has like a, a jet engine on the back of it. <laughs> and uh, the thing looks like it's going to just fly apart. And it's it's hilarious. Uh, he, he goes and makes all these crazy inventions. He actually made a working hover bike out of like a couple of really large. It looks like fans with big motors. Um, it's just really dangerous stuff. And I kept thinking, you know, is, is this guy married? Like, why yeah. is his wife letting him do this? Like, why <laughs> does he not have parents? Like, is his mom not calling him? Like, I saw your video on YouTube. You need to wear a helmet, you know, uh, cause he's yeah. not, he's riding this thing down. What looks like a, a small airfield runway. 
at top speed, jets like fire flaming out of the back of this bicycle. And it's not even like a, a sturdy looking mountain bike. The thing has a basket on the front of it. OK, Oh man, <laughs> small tires. And I'm just I'm watching this like this dude is going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the gold plating thing, sometimes simplest is best, right? I mean, yeah. Occam, Occam's razor tells us just a principle of good thinking and philosophy that the simplest answer, all things being equal, is usually the correct one. So if someone comes to you now, I think as a service provider, a lot of times people come to me and say, I, I want this solution. And what they bring to me is I want a simple one page contract. Mm-hmm. And I say, whoa, wait a minute. No, you don't. I know you think you do. And I respect that. I respect that you you're trying to do the right thing here. But what is it really that you're trying to accomplish. And for a service provider, uh, it's important to listen to the answer to that question. It's important to ask the question and then really listen, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I'll i tell you, one of the favorite parts of my job is when I get to do the planning and the discovery part of a project, because it's a good time to ask, okay, what, for me, I I came from a product manager background, which is a little bit different than project, but not too different. But it was always the question is like, what's what's the problem we're trying to solve? And when you understand that and everyone's aligned on that, then you can start to have ideas about what the solution will be. And that's the fun part. But it's a matter of just continuing to ask questions and not being afraid to continue to ask questions. As far as my role goes as a project manager and a business analyst really is what I do. But also for the client, it really helps them think about it. And maybe they'll surface something that they didn't even know they wanted or needed. I mean, Apple does that all the time. They'll provide something new in the iPhone that you're like, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. Why would I use this? And then a month later, you're using it. Oh, it solved a problem I didn't know I had. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's kind of a cool part. And that's kind of, I think, one of the good things is, yeah, someone comes to you and says, hey, I want a one page contract. You're all, well, wait, what what do you need a contract for? Well, actually, it'll be three pages, but this will cover it. You know, and that's kind mm-hmm. of the the beauty of having a partnership with someone where you can tell them that rather than you trying to shove everything to one page and not do a great job for them. Right. Yeah, no, I just refuse. I just say, well, the the contract is as long as it needs to be. I'm not I'm not going to pre-agree to an arbitrary length or page count or word count. I'm not going to make it any longer than it needs to be, but I'm not going to make it any shorter than it needs to be. It's kind of like uh, Gandalf says in, what is it, Lord of the Rings, where he says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. And <laughs> I'm the same way with my word count. The contract is never too long. It's precisely as long as it needs to be. Uh, but I think the the contracts need to be written and the relation, you know, they need to be written in order to correspond to the nature of the relationship and the relationship needs to allow for back and forth. And so therefore the, the contracts need to allow for back and forth. And where a lot of that comes out for either product management or project management contracts, as far as I've seen is in the statement of work. And what I'd like for my audience to know about what you do and and how to implement these things that you're talking about is that when it comes time to laying down a contract with a professional um, who does this sort of work, uh, you want to have a contract that has a well-defined statement of work. It Mm -hmm. specifically articulates what the scope of the project is, specifically articulates the timeline, the budget, the milestones, and even the process for acceptance of the deliverables so that all of that is objective and verifiable. And you can go back to that time and again throughout the, the project and say, now 
you've said you wanted this or that deviates a little bit from what we've got in the statement of work. Do you really want to pay for a change or are you happy to continue on with the scope that we've agreed on? And that can really, I think, help pivot a conversation back to the original intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole change request process has to be defined and it mm -hmm. has to be respected. And sometimes things will change. And that's the nature of of business, really. And I mean, depending on who's who a customer is, but the thing that's important is, yeah, being able to have that discussion. Part of a project manager, what our role often is with scope is to there's trade offs. So you have this idea, there's like this theory of constraints. So you have time, money, and resources. Well, or sometimes like you, you replace that with quality. But basically, if you want it fast and cheap, it won't be good, you know, is one of the ideas because it's going to take a certain amount of effort to get it to a good quality, for example, a build of something. But when you look at it from a project manager perspective too, we have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of budget and a certain amount of like resources to get things done. And so if you want to change scope as a client, then that's going to something else will have to give. Either you have to like not do something else or do less of something else or extend the time, which extends the money, things like that. And so that's something that people just... It ends up, it can be a really good discussion where the client can say, oh, you know what? I see what you mean. Or it can be a really difficult discussion. But I think as long as there are regular checkpoints and people are communicating, you can avoid like really difficult situations because you have that person who, again, who is accountable in the SOW that is in touch and understands where the project's going. You know, these are great principles, but what, one of the things that I often do in the podcast is use like real world examples. So yeah. uh, is there a story that you can share that kind of brings this into the realm of, of reality of how this has played out in your professional experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, I just thinking of like the best example off the top of my head, I was at Fossil, the watches and bags company, and I was a product owner then. So I was actually the client and there was a team that was building the website as a website redesign who I actually am working for now. So it went, went in a full circle way for me. But when we were working on the Fossil website, there were specific requirements because it was kind of taking an old website and putting it on a new platform and making a new user interface, new designs and everything. And I remember this one specific thing that came up because it was it was such an annoying thing and remember i was working for for the who the client is at this point and there was this option for the buttons to be black <laughs> and then someone well first there was going to be orange was the thing orange or white or black and then someone didn't like the orange and wanted to change it but this change because it had been built so specifically because fossil the person who i was it was basically me you know representing my company kept saying they wanted these specific buttons and the company building for us said, well, what about this? And trying to thought about like making it more flexible or whatever, but no, they didn't want it more flexible. And then they came time to like change the color of the button. Everything was kind of hard coded at that point. And it caused like more effort, more time, more money, all that. And there were probably a thousand cuts like that on that project where it just kept carrying on where there was this change wanted and change wanted. And it was partly because we didn't listen to the company that was building for us, basically. You know, and we didn't listen and we kept wanting things very specific. The image has to be this specific size. We want the button here. And it was never like there was never like a good negotiation or 
consideration. And that was really that was really rough. And same thing with like when you think about languages, the site needed to be in English, German, Japanese, all these different languages. Well, English and and Latin languages, the letters are the same width and they're all about the same length and everything as far as the words go. When you get into German, the words are a lot longer. When you get into Japanese, kanji is like a double byte size character instead of a single. So all that stuff ha- like affects how the site looks, but no one would consider that either. So that caused a lot of problems too. So it was just like constant things like that where, you know, if you hire consultants, let them consult you <laughs> is, is the lesson. Yeah, I tell my clients there's no point in hiring a professional if you're not going to listen to their advice. If you're just going to do whatever you think and whatever you want to do anyway, why throw your money away on a pro? The point that you're making is so salient and important and relevant because part of it is just getting the value of what you paid. But also there's this element of humility that we need to have that we can't all be experts at everything. And the whole reason that we work with professionals is because they have expertise that we lack and we should we should listen. And then the professionals should be humble enough to really listen to what the client wants and let the client be the boss insofar as they can clearly articulate what problem they're trying to solve and the, the general approach that that they believe would work can, that's consistent with your advice. Mm-hmm. Can you give us just one to two, just a last little question. Can you give us one to two sort of directionally correct steps that people can take as they approach their next big project to get the most out of working with a professional or a project manager on the other side? Yeah, sure. So I think there are two things. One is be prepared. When you're engaging someone to work on your project, be prepared with prerequisites for them to start working. So if that's designs, if they're working with you on designs, then it should be what your vision is and what your purpose is. But if you're past that and you're getting something designed and someone's going to implement it, have the designs ready and have a timeline for when they will be ready. But you don't want someone to start working and then have to stop and things like that because it's just going to start costing money. And then the other thing is I recommend that people use what's called like a RACI matrix. It's R-A-C-I and it stands for um, Responsible, Accountable, Consulted and Informed. And you can find these online. And basically, you can list out all the tasks or deliverables, and then you can list out who is who is like all on the project. And then you can say if that person for each task, are they responsible for it? Are they accountable? Are they just to be consulted or just to be informed? And that really helps just kind of from a staffing perspective, know who all the players are and know who's going to be doing what. And that's really helpful because then kind of gets everyone's mindset ready for contributing to the project in the way they they are expected to. That calls to my mind a, a previous discussion that we've had with a, a different podcast guest where we talked about the value and importance of organizational charts. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you don't have a well fleshed out, clear organizational chart, it's, it's going to be really difficult to use that RACI matrix because you, you don't really know what zone everyone's playing. If you consider it like mm-hmm. a zone defense, right? You don't really know, OK, well, this pertains to this person's job and their job description, their role. You know, if everybody's kind of doing everything, then you're not going to have clear division of labor. I really appreciate you coming on to share your insight about how to get some of these things right and how people can benefit, be more efficient, more effective in working with project managers and uh, more profitable overall. Before you go, though, can you share, number one, how people can connect with you 
and how they can get the most out of that initial interaction. Obviously, we want them to go and listen to the More Than Work podcast, but what is the main channel for connecting with you and and how can they get the most out of that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, and thank you about the podcast. I think for this audience, for sure, More Than Work pod, wherever you go, if you go to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, it's More Than Work pod is how you find the podcast. And I think just the first episode, really, you learn about me and why I started the podcast and my thoughts. And then I would say just go through and look at episodes that are intriguing to you. I mean, I have all different people that I've talked to, but I would say just, you know, give them a listen. And of course, if you like the podcast, subscribe and review and all that. But um, I definitely think just hearing what brought me to do it and then hearing from whatever guests kind of resonate with you just based on their description would be great. All right. Well, thanks again for being a guest on the Profit From Legal podcast. We're really happy to have you. Uh, Really valuable insights. It's just been a a great discussion this last uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, But that's all for this episode of Profit From Legal. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, share it with your friends, and tune in for the next episode of the Profit From Legal podcast next week. Thanks. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. This moment of relief brought to you by your local State Farm agent, who also brings relief with all your auto insurance needs. Call State Farm agent Ann Bishop-Price in Duluth today. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. This edition for Saturday, July 10th, Haiti in turmoil in the aftermath of the assassination of its president. After years of debate, Confederate statues come down in Charlottesville, Virginia. And new economic opportunity where the steel industry once dominated. Next on PBS NewsHour Weekend. PBS NewsHour Weekend is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family, the Anderson Family Fund, the estate of Worthington Mayo Smith, the Leonard and Norma Chlorfine Foundation, the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, Koo and Patricia Ewan, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, We try to live in the moment to not miss what's right in front of us. At Mutual of America, we believe taking care of tomorrow can help you make the most of today. Mutual of America Financial Group, retirement services and investments. 
For 25 years, Consumer Cellular's goal has been to provide wireless service that helps people communicate and connect. We offer a variety of no-contract plans, and our U.S.-based customer service team can help find one that fits you. To learn more, visit ConsumerCellular.tv. Additional support has been provided by and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Haiti's interim government is asking the United States and the United Nations to send troops in the wake of the assassination of President Jovenel Moise on Wednesday. Interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph made the extraordinary request for military help to protect critical infrastructure, including fuel reserves, the airport, and the port. As of this afternoon, the U.S. has pledged to send only FBI and Homeland Security officials to help investigate the assassination. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said there were no plans to provide military assistance. Haitian First Lady Martine Moise was seriously injured in the brazen attack on Wednesday morning and is recovering in a hospital in Florida. In an audio recording released today, she called on Haitians to not let her husband's death be in vain. Twenty people have been arrested so far. The majority are Colombians who are believed to be hired mercenaries. Two U.S. citizens of Haitian descent were also arrested. At least five people are still being sought in connection with the assassination. In Port-au-Prince, vigilantes patrolled the streets looking for suspects. Yesterday, security forces killed three suspects in gunfights. Amid the growing chaos, more than 1,000 people gathered outside the U.S. Embassy hoping for a way out of the country. I'm scared. There are many gunshots, and you don't even know where they are coming from. I have abandoned my home. I can't go back. I don't know about my family. We will have more on this following the news summary. In Charlottesville, Virginia, this morning, two Confederate monuments at the center of the deadly 2017 white supremacist Unite the Right rally were removed. Dozens of spectators watched as the first statue of General Robert E. Lee was lifted from its stone pedestal. At the event, Charlottesville's mayor said taking the statues down is one small step in what she called the sin of destroying black people for economic gain. As this community and our country attempts to reconcile with this hypothesis of white supremacy, I hope that we can move to an authentic healing by embracing truth. Cruz also removed a second Confederate monument dedicated to General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. The removals follow years of national debate and a long legal fight. The statues will be stored in a secure location until the city council makes a final decision about what to do with them. New cases of the coronavirus are up 52 percent in the United States on average over the past 14 days, although the numbers are still far below peak levels. Hotspots are growing in several states, primarily where vaccination rates are low. The New York Times tracking data shows Arkansas with a 140 percent increase in cases. Only 35 percent of people in Arkansas are fully vaccinated, well below the 48 percent nationwide. Globally, the Delta variant continues to cause shutdowns and new restrictions. In Australia, the region surrounding the country's largest city reported its largest daily increase in cases today. Sydney's 5 million residents are in the midst of a three-week lockdown, which may be extended. 79% of people hospitalized there are unvaccinated. Officials say no fully vaccinated people have required hospitalization. 
President Joe Biden has fired the head of the Social Security Administration after Commissioner Andrew Saul refused to resign. Former President Trump appointed Saul in 2018, and he was confirmed by the Senate the following year for a six-year term. President Biden made the decision after a legal opinion from the Justice Department found that Saul could be fired at will, even though a statute says that the commissioner can only be fired for cause. The Social Security Administration is responsible for distributing benefits to about 64 million Americans. Senate Finance Committee Chair Democrat Ron Wyden applauded the decision, saying in a statement that, quote, every president should choose the personnel that will best carry out their vision for the country. And he pledged to confirm a new commissioner, quote, as swiftly as possible. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell tweeted that he believes the firing would be, quote, an unprecedented and dangerous politicization of the Social Security Administration. A heat wave is scorching the western states this weekend with some high temperatures expected to be 20 degrees or more above average. More than 28 million people will endure triple-digit heat, the majority in Arizona, Nevada, and California's Central Valley. Washington state and some parts of western Canada could also see 100-degree temperatures. California's Death Valley hit 130 degrees yesterday, matching the hottest temperature observed anywhere on Earth since July 7, 1931. Authorities in California declared a state of emergency in 50 of its 58 counties and asked residents to voluntarily conserve power and cut water use to avoid outages. This time last year, just over 20% of California was in severe drought. This year, that number has spiked to 95%, fueling fires north of Lake Tahoe yesterday and forcing evacuations. For more national and international news, visit pbs.org newshour. As we reported at the top of the program, the crisis in Haiti after the assassination of its president is continuing, and officials there are asking for help. I spoke with Marlene Doubt, professor of African Diaspora Studies at the University of Virginia, about Haiti's history, what may come next, and the current political situation there. Politically in Haiti right now, there's a lot of confusion. There's confusion about who is running the country. We have two prime ministers, um, you know, sort of in quotation marks, claiming that they are running the country. So that would be Claude Joseph and Ariel Henry. Um, we also have the UN special envoy declaring that it's Joseph who is in charge. Uh, there's a question about whether or not she actually has the authority to, to proclaim that. Um, and so there's a, a lot of people asking that same question without a whole lot of answers that are definitive. So how does this translate into the functioning of government when there is a question of whose order ultimately to follow? I mean, when you talk about the Supreme Court or you talk about any kind of administrative duty or responsibility that a government has. There are actually very few elected officials and government officials in place at the moment. And the reason for that is that um, President Moise had allowed parliament to lapse. And so the parliament was essentially dissolved and has been in that state for more than a year. So he's been ruling by what is called decree and essentially running the government on his own. Um, The reason for the confusion about the prime minister is that he had declared a new prime minister was to take office, but that person, Henri, um, had not yet been sworn in. So I think there's actually, and with the Supreme Court justice having died of COVID recently, um, which is sort of another strain in the story of President Moise's lack of really 
responding to the COVID-19 crisis and getting vaccinations for the Haitian people, especially. Um, so there's really a power vacuum when people say that. In this case, it's not just a metaphor. It's, it's actually very true where we see nobody really knows who's in charge um, and, or who has the authority to even say who would be in charge. But what do you gather from the composition of the group of people who were part of the assassination? It's very interesting. So the majority of them appear to be Colombian nationals with two Haitian Americans. Um, I think that the composition of that group um, says a lot about, you know, who they are, but doesn't necessarily tell us anything really about who sent them. And that to me is what is the most interesting part of this puzzle, which really does remain a puzzle at this moment, is that um, it doesn't appear to be that the Colombian government is involved, although this is these are early days. Um, and I suspect that the interrogations will continue to reveal new information, whether or not that information given by those arrested is to be also trusted is another story. What do you see happening in this sort of shorter to medium term? Well, uh, this is really up in the air. I think that in the short term, both an internal investigation, which is being conducted by the police force in Haiti, needs to occur. But I think that there does need to be some external investigations in terms of who exactly is funding this. You would need a lot of money to send this convoy with this many people armed this heavily with their vehicles um, and to figure out who are all the players involved in this and if there is not some larger story. Because yeah. it seems to me that the easy answer is to say that the Haitian opposition groups must be responsible, but it seems to me that with this knowledge of who the makeup of the assassins, that there is likely a larger story that will need to be uncovered. All right. University of Virginia professor Marlene Dowd, thanks so much. Thank you. For more than 100 years, a steel mill on the Patapsco River near Baltimore was a major economic driver of the region. At its height in the 1950s, it employed tens of thousands of workers. When it closed for good almost a decade ago, few people thought the economic prosperity it provided could ever be replaced. But over the last several years, a new set of businesses has risen at the site of the former steel mill and ushered in an economic transition that reflects the new landscape of jobs in today's American economy. NewsHour Weekend Special Correspondent Carla Morthy has our story from Maryland. So this was specifically built for black families. Yes. 68-year-old Larry Bannerman grew up in Turner Station, an historically black neighborhood in Baltimore County, Maryland. It was open doors, and the people left the keys in their car, Everybody's parents watched everybody's children. It was like Mayberry, <laughs> like a black Mayberry. It was, it was great. He says the big reason it was so great is because there were plenty of good-paying jobs for residents, including his family, just across the bay in Sparrows Point at the steel mill that had been operating there since 1889. There was no place in Turner Station you could go and not hear and see what was happening at Sparrows Point. At its height in the 1950s, the Bethlehem Steel Mill was the largest mill in the world and employed 30,000 people. Union workers were paid wages that supported their families and built thriving middle-class neighborhoods. 
it was the economic powerhouse for this community. It enabled this community to grow, enabled uh, residents to send their kids to college. But as the American steel industry collapsed from overseas competition and disinvestment, so did Bethlehem Steel, which eventually went bankrupt in 2001. Over the next 10 years, four other companies tried to make steel at Sparrows Point, but also failed. In 2012, this once mighty industrial center went silent. How did that affect Turner Station? How did it affect the community here? People who lost their homes, there were uh, people who lost everything. And I mean, we watched uh, the, the, the blast furnace where our parents worked be blown up. I mean, they actually blew it up. And that thing fell over like a big lump. And I mean, you know, so did hearts. Uh, nobody believed they, they could replace it. But almost a decade after the steel mills shut down, a new economic landscape is rising from Sparrows Point. Instead of steel mills and smoke, the view now is a... Amazon blue and white. In 2018, Amazon opened an 855,000 square foot fulfillment warehouse and last year opened a second that's over a million square feet. FedEx... Under Armour and BMW are some of the 30 companies that have opened distribution centers on the former steel mill site that's now called Trade Point Atlantic. It's a very diverse set of businesses operating on site, and they're defining the new economy that has taken shape over the last 10 years. Aaron Tamarchio is the executive vice president of corporate affairs at Trade Point Atlantic. Its parent company, Redwood Capital Investments, acquired the 3,300-acre site for a reported $150 million. Tamarchio says the growth of e-commerce has fueled the transformation of Sparrows Point into a global distribution hub. What is really unique about this property is the convergence of all of this infrastructure assets that were left over from a 19th century steel mill and are now being repurposed for instance, the site has access to a deep water port. Once used to bring in raw materials to manufacture steel, it now brings in brand new Audis and Volkswagens. Located centrally on the East Coast, nearly a third of the U.S. population is within a day's drive. There's also an on-site rail line that can bring in products in mass directly into the warehouses. Each boxcar represents roughly four truckloads of flatbed trucks. Phil Snyder is the general manager of this Home Depot facility. He says all that infrastructure was a big reason the company built a 700,000-square-foot distribution center here in 2019. What we're seeing is customers want to order what they want, when they want it, wherever they want it. We can put a, a large labor force in here. We can fit 30 flatbed trucks in an effort to be able to accomplish that for the region. Home Depot has plans to double its footprint with another center later this year and will employ 500 people at both facilities. But it's not all warehouses. On the northern end of Sparrows Point, Gotham Greens opened a 100,000-square-foot greenhouse last year. Our goal is to grow locally and distribute regionally, um, but on a national scale. So this is one of our network of greenhouses in cities across America. Julie McMahon is a senior brand manager at Gotham Greens. The company hydroponically grows 6 million heads of lettuce here every year and ships directly to surrounding stores. 
what we're really trying to do is reimagine these urban landscapes that once were really major hubs for manufacturing and really coming in and thinking about what the new version of, of 21st century manufacturing looks like and, and maybe that's a, a local greenhouse. 60 people are employed full-time here. Across all companies combined, there are now 10,000 people employed on TradePoint Atlantic's site. But turning a former steel mill into a distribution center has its challenges. The biggest obstacle that we really had to work through was the idea that this site, because it produced steel for 125 years, was no longer going to be a steel mill, that it was going to be something different. And getting the community to buy into what that vision is uh, took, took, took steps. There was a lot of skepticism. Uh, Larry Bannerman recalls when Aaron Tamarchio first came out to Turner Station to talk with community members about plans for Sparrows Point. One of Bannerman's main concerns was the environmental cleanup of the former steel mill site. We want to see the right thing happen with pollution remediation. Uh, so that's, that's always been a big thing here. He remembers the toll working at the steel mill had on his father's health. As a kid, he says, the smokestacks would spew out orange dust that would stain their clothes. And the local beach had to be closed because kids were getting lesions on their skin from swimming in the water. Can you get in the water now? No, better not. <laughs> I mean, you get in, in a canoe or something, but uh, that pollution over there, it, it's, it's historic. Um, it's going to take a long time to clean it up. Trade Point has so far committed over $70 million to clean up the site in an agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency and local officials. Water pumps are filtering contaminated groundwater, and a heavily polluted runoff ditch has already been cleaned up. You can see the terrain is how uneven it is. Yeah. Trade Point also had to figure out what to do with the mounds of slag on site, a leftover byproduct from the steelmaking process that can be toxic. They basically created land and then built up the land by piling slag on top of it. Here, they are processing the slag not only to level the site, but also because it makes a great infill to build on. So this is going to be used as fill material and base material for the new development projects that you see off in the distance over here. To date, TradePoint and its tenants have invested more than $2 billion to upgrade and redevelop the site, and it's now nearly 60% built out. It really is a model, I think, for innovation and for transformation. John Olszewski is the county executive for Baltimore County, a Democrat and a lifelong resident of the area. As hard as it was for some members of our community to see it go, uh, to now see national companies coming in and thousands of jobs returning, environmental remediation, you know, it's a true community asset now. But whether thousands of non-union jobs in warehouses can generate the same path to the middle class as the steel industry did for generations of workers is in question. Adjusted for inflation, a new hire at the Sparrows Point Steel Mill in the mid-90s would have started earning between $21 and $30 an hour, far above the advertised $15 an hour today at companies like Amazon. How do you respond to the criticism that, yes, you know, there are now 10,000 new jobs, but many of those warehouse jobs do not compare to, you know, the wages and the stability of the jobs that you could get at the steel mill? They're, they're not steel mill jobs, uh, but we also have to reckon as a country with the fact that those jobs are not necessarily um, the jobs that are going to be created. And so while there you know, may not be manufacturing jobs on site in the way that it was at uh, when it was Sparrows Point 
and uh, Bethlehem Steel and, and, and subsequent iterations, I mean, people were excited to have people working again on site. They were excited to have economic activity. He also points out that local officials negotiated with TradePoint to ensure that minority-owned local businesses would benefit from the development, like Strum Contracting. We had a year's worth of work, and in construction, if you have a place to go for a year, you're doing real good. Strum is a family-owned welding and fabricating company in Baltimore, founded by James Strum and now run by his daughter, Tierra Strum. The company was hired by TradePoint Atlantic to structurally shore up the berth of the deep water port. It was the largest contract they had ever received. To complete the work, Strum created eight new full-time positions and filled them with welding trainees out of a local workforce development program, doubling its staff. Construction is one of the easiest ways to make a good wage when you have low barriers to entry and low skill sets. They go from making seven, eight dollars an hour to at the bare minimum 18 to 20 dollars an hour with benefits. So the revitalization of TradePoint Atlantic has allowed firms like Strum Contracting to scale and grow and provide jobs for the community. Strum also acquired a larger facility in hopes of getting more work from the TradePoint development, building and installing platforms, handrails, and stairs for offshore wind turbines. The Danish company Orsted has leased 45 acres there as part of its plan to develop offshore wind projects off the coast of Maryland, the first to be completed by 2026. That hasn't happened yet. It is a risk. I mean, are you worried at all about the future? I'm not. If we were not ready, this opportunity would pass us by. Every crane I see moving is a job. And seven years ago, it was nothing. While Tamarkiwa acknowledges that these may not all be the manufacturing jobs of the past, he says TradePoint Atlantic is meeting a need in today's economy. What happened here in Baltimore at Ferris Point is very emblematic of what's happened across our nation and what happened to the American industrial economy. People want those older economy jobs back, and I don't have the ability to bring them back. I have the ability to respond to the market and provide the best opportunities for job creation in the market that we're in. This is PBS NewsHour Weekend, Saturday. Finally tonight, this week marked the 114th birthday of celebrated Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. In her birthplace of Mexico City, she was honored with a rare exhibit two years in the making. NewsHour Weekend's Yvette Feliciano has more. Mexico City, entering the new exhibit honoring the late Mexican painter Frida Kahlo, guests are treated to a multi-sensory experience. You can get to know Frida, not just as an artist that the world knows, but also Frida in another dimension. You can also listen to the music she listened to. You can find out family secrets and many experiences that enrich this exhibition. The exhibit, Frida, the Immersive Experience, features 26 of the artist's most iconic works. Some of her most famous paintings, such as Two Fridas, Me and My Parrots, and Self-Portrait with Cropped Hair, are animated and digitally projected onto textured walls. Event organizers hope the installation will transport the audience into the world of Frida Kahlo. Born in 1907, 
Gallo was involved in a bus accident as a teenager that forced her into months of bed rest where she took up painting. Her painful recovery, more than 30 surgeries in all, makes up much of her legacy and is evident in her work. But organizers and her family wanted to see the fullness of her life reflected in this exhibit. She was a really kind person, a person with heart, and that is what we want the public to know. Not just the artists, but the flesh and blood of Frida. After more than a year of the coronavirus pandemic, viewers seem eager to immerse themselves in the life and work of this iconic artist. That's all for this edition of PBS NewsHour Weekend. For the latest news updates, visit pbs.org slash newshour. I'm Hari Srinivasan. Thanks for watching. Stay healthy and have a good night. PBS NewsHour Weekend is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family, the Anderson Family Fund, the estate of Worthington Mayo Smith, the Leonard and Norma Chlorfine Foundation, the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation, Koo and Patricia Ewan, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, we try to live in the moment to not miss what's right in front of us. At Mutual of America, we believe taking care of tomorrow can help you make the most of today. Mutual of America Financial Group, retirement services and investments. Additional support has been provided by Consumer Cellular and by and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a private corporation funded by the American people. And by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Tonight, the CDC announcing new COVID guidelines for reopening our nation's schools. Fully vaccinated students do not need to wear masks when they return in the fall, the CDC says. But what about the millions of children under 12 not yet eligible for the vaccine? And the confusion over booster shots after Pfizer said a third dose would offer more protection. How the CDC and FDA are pushing back. Dr. Fauci is here to answer your questions. Two Americans brought before the cameras today among the suspects in the assassination of Haiti's president. What they've told authorities in tonight word the FBI is joining the investigation. President Biden's new call with Vladimir Putin warning him again over relentless cyber attacks. Elsa slamming the Northeast, flooding in New York subway stations, and in the West, another punishing heat wave, more than 30 million under alerts. The head of the FDA calling for an investigation into a controversial Alzheimer's drug. A new twist in the billionaire space race just hours before Richard Branson hopes to blast off into history. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. 
Good evening, I'm Peter Alexander in for Lester. We begin tonight with two major headlines in the fight to combat COVID. The CDC releasing new guidance for schools, urging them to fully reopen this fall for in-person learning, saying those who are vaccinated do not need masks and those who are not should wear them. And after that news that we told you about last night, that Pfizer is developing a booster shot to target the Delta variant, the FDA and CDC now say those who are fully vaccinated do not need a booster. I just asked Dr. Anthony Fauci about all of it. We will have that in a moment. But we begin with late-breaking details from Miguel Almaguer. How are you doing? When fully vaccinated students and teachers return to the classroom, they won't need a face mask, says the CDC. The new guidance, which several states stopped enforcing weeks ago, now mirrors the same indoor guidelines for inoculated adults. But vaccines are not yet available for children under 12, meaning roughly 28 million school-age kids should still wear a mask and take preventative measures. It can be difficult for a school to either um, document the vaccination status of their students, teachers and staff. And so in that situation, they might decide to do universal policies. The CDC's guidance comes as the agency calls for all schools to fully reopen and also weighs in on the battle over boosters. I'm going to have you pull up your shirt. After Pfizer said its vaccine efficacy shows a decline after six months and that Americans would get added protection from a third shot, both the CDC and FDA say there is no scientific evidence a booster is needed yet. Across the board, it is clear, even with the Delta variant, vaccine effectiveness against severe disease and hospitalization is very high after two doses. Still, with Pfizer moving forward, getting many Americans even their first dose remains daunting. I'm not going to get vaccinated. That's a, that's a hard no. In Wisconsin, authorities are going door to door hoping to increase the vaccination rate, which just rose nationwide by 0.1 percent. With super sites like the Javits Center now closing their doors, the dangerous Delta variant is fueling outbreaks nationwide. We did not expect the arrival of the Delta variant or um, the number of, like, how infectious it was. Tonight's setbacks as our nation moves forward and as children get ready to face a new school year. Miguel, even though the CDC says vaccinated children do not need face masks, does it mean that all districts are going to lift their policies? No, Peter, it'll be up to local school districts to decide if universal mask wearing is needed. And many schools say that's likely the direction they'll move in. Peter. Miguel, thank you. And I just spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci about schools and that debate over boosters. But I started off asking him whether every school should be opening its doors for full time in-person learning this fall. The answer to that is an absolute yes. We want to get children back in school in person across the board as we enter into the fall term. You said this week that vaccines currently work against the Delta variant, but Pfizer says that it is producing a vaccine booster that would target it specifically. So do Americans really need a booster? Right now, they don't. We feel that ultimately at some point, we may need a boost as the durability of the response wanes. But we don't know that right now, and we don't know when that will be. But we are certainly in the process of trying to find out. 67% of American adults to this point have now received at least one shot. But that means after a months-long push, a third of American adults have so far decided not to get a shot. If we stick at about 67%, 
Is that enough? What would that mean? Well, we need to do better than that. And that's exactly the reason why we're pulling out all the stops. Whatever it takes, even if we get trusted community people, trusted messengers in the community to go house by house, person by person, not to force anybody to do anything, but try and explain to them why it is so important for their own health, for the health of their family, and actually indirectly for the health of the entire community. Just part of our discussion tonight with Anthony Fauci. The U.S. is sending federal investigators to Haiti tonight after the assassination of that country's president. The move comes after Haitian authorities announced a new wave of arrests that includes two Americans. Here's Gabe Gutierrez. Haitian authorities now say at least 28 suspects were involved in the assassination of the country's president, lining them up for the world to see behind the table displaying firearms, machetes, and Colombian passports. Haitian police say 17 men have been arrested, including 15 Colombians and two Haitian Americans. Three suspects died in a gun battle, and eight others are still on the run. Haitian government officials identified the U.S. citizens to NBC News as James Salagis and Joseph Vincent. The New York Times, citing a Haitian judge involved in the investigation, reports that the two Americans were working as translators and said they were not in the room when President Jovenel Moise was killed. Monsieur, monsieur, monsieur. With the country in turmoil, the U.S. is sending FBI and Homeland Security officials to help investigate. Some protesters don't believe the government's account and are skeptical that a supposedly professional group of killers could carry this out but be caught so quickly. Haiti is is in a state of shock. Laurent Lamothe is a former prime minister of Haiti. Could an assassination like this have been carried out without some inside help? A lot of people are, are not understanding some of the ease of access to the president's house and the breakdown of security. There's been a complete security breakdown in the, the, the president's security detail. The former prime minister says Haiti's first lady was shot three times. Tonight, she's still in critical condition at a Miami hospital, Peter. Gabe, thank you very much. And in just 60 seconds, President Biden's new warning to Vladimir Putin after the stunning and the stunning reversal after the approval of that controversial Alzheimer's drug. Now to President Biden's phone call today with Vladimir Putin and his latest warning about ongoing cyber attacks following their face-to-face -face summit in Geneva. His message, without cooperation, there will be consequences. Kelly O'Donnell is at the White House tonight. Turning up the pressure, President Biden for a second time warned Vladimir Putin to stop Russian criminal hackers seizing American companies' data, demanding ransom. During an hour-long phone call, Mr. Biden said Putin must disrupt these cyber gangs. The United States expects when a ransomware operation is coming from his soil, expect them to act if we give them enough information to act on who that is. Pressed further on consequences for Putin. Will there be, sir? Yes. Mr. Biden's first threat was delivered in person last month in Geneva. But ransomware attacks continued, stoking Republican criticism. What did they come away after Joe Biden threatened Putin? They hacked more companies in America. And what has Biden done? Today, for the first time publicly, the president said his response could include a U.S. cyber attack on the servers used by these Russian hackers. Peter? Kelly O'Donnell. Kelly, thank you. In Afghanistan, there is desperation tonight among the thousands of translators who help the U.S. and want to leave now to escape Taliban reprisals. NBC's Richard Engel is in Kabul. 
The Taliban today took over two more Afghan border crossings and now claim to control 85% of Afghanistan. That may be an exaggeration, but not by much. The Taliban certainly control or are fighting to control the majority of the country. As the Afghan army fractures and surrenders. Left behind are thousands of Afghan contractors and translators. The Taliban considers them traitors. Yesterday, President Biden had this message for them. Good afternoon. There is a home for you in the United States, if you so choose. And we will stand with you just as you stood with us. In Kabul, I met Tom, which is what U.S. troops called him. Did you hear President Biden's promise? I got a lot of news, a lot of announcements, but there's no action. Tom lived in close quarters with U.S. troops and has reams of recommendation letters. He helped translate for and sometimes defend U.S. forces on 150 combat operations. He told me, like, hey, Tom, just get behind me and show me the enemies. So you're pointing out to yeah, the yeah, U.S. soldiers I, well, I where pointed, the Taliban are. Yeah, I'm pointing them. I pointed They're over them. there. They're over yeah, there. Yeah, sir. Tom's former company commander vouches for him and wrote a letter endorsing his application. We owe a debt not just to Tom, but to the, to the interpreters that, that served us and fought alongside us. Tom has been waiting for his visa for four years. This process is really a hard man. You helped the U.S., now the U.S. needs to help you. Yep. Simple as that. Yeah, yeah. That time U.S. Need, was need help, so we helped them. Right now we need help, so U.S. Army... The U.S. government had to help us. Seems reasonable. Tom says he was told his visa is still in administrative processing and that translators have already been killed, including a colleague killed on his way to pick up his visa. Peter? Richard Engel in Afghanistan tonight. Richard, thank you. And tonight, a breakthrough between the U.S. and Russia allowing urgent aid deliveries for Syrian refugees displaced by civil war. Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent Andrea Mitchell recently traveled to both of those border camps. Andrea, this deal came right before the deadline. Peter, only hours before the U.N.'s aid to millions of Syrian refugees was to be shut down, Russia agreed to let it continue for 12 months, but only through one corridor from Turkey. We visited that border crossing last month with U.S. U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who negotiated the aid renewal with her Russian counterpart in round-the-clock talks at the U.N. President Biden commended the renewal in his call with Vladimir Putin today, but critics say it is not enough given the dire conditions. Last Saturday, Russian airstrikes and Syrian artillery struck more villages in the area. Relief workers say killing eight, including children. Peter. Andrea Mitchell, thank you very much. And heavy rain is falling across parts of New England tonight as Elsa finally makes its way out of the U.S. New York City getting a one-two punch. Some subway riders there braving waist-deep flood waters. And on the other side of the country, another potentially historic heat wave. Some 33 million people in 10 states under heat advisories and warnings this weekend. Now to a stunning move by the acting head of the FDA, asking for an independent investigation into the agency's own staff after the approval last month of a controversial new Alzheimer's drug. We get more from Kristen Dahlgren. Tonight, the acting head of the FDA calling for an inspector general's investigation into approval of Aduhelm, the first Alzheimer's drug in decades. 
Janet Woodcock writing she's concerned about contacts between representatives from Biogen and FDA during the review process, including some that may have occurred outside of the formal correspondence process. It's one of the worst decisions that I can remember. Dr. Aaron Kesselheim resigned from the FDA Advisory Committee after the drug's approval last month. If there is data that the FDA has that, that we don't know about that might justify aspects of the decision, then we should know that. Approval of Adjuham was already controversial after evidence of its effectiveness was inconclusive. The drug, which costs $56,000 a year, was first approved for all approximately 6 million Americans who suffer from Alzheimer's. This week, that was revised to those in the disease's early stages, like Phil Guttis, who participated in the drug's trials. It is a little bit of a gut punch um, because... You know, I do believe this has helped me. While in a statement, Biogen said we will cooperate with any inquiry. As tonight, millions of families facing Alzheimer's wait for answers about the drug that once brought so much hope. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. Two controversial monuments are set to come down this weekend after a years-long legal battle in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Confederate statues of Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson will both be removed. Those two statues became a flashpoint, sparking that deadly white supremacist rally in 2017. Up next, a new twist in the billionaire space race. Richard Branson blasts off on Sunday to the edge of space, but in the billionaire space battle, a new twist. Here's Tom Costello. Down to the wire as Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic showcases the final preps for its spaceship. On Sunday, flying to 50,000 feet before release. Fire. Fire. Then rocketing to the Kármán line that marks the edge of space. NASA and the Air Force say that line is 50 miles high. Virgin test pilots have already climbed to 56 miles. But now the Bezos team is tweeting that only their rocket will climb 62 miles high, the internationally recognized Kármán line. And their passenger astronauts won't have an asterisk by their names. And by the way, they have bigger windows to gaze at the Earth. Blue Origin uses a rocket. Virgin Galactic uses a space plane with 17 windows. If he was here, he would argue that his experience was better than ours. And I can give you lots of reasons why we think our experience is better than his. Um, but they're, they're both valid. Bezos launches on the 20th, bringing along one-time female NASA astronaut candidate Wally Funk. I want to say, honey, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> At 82, her first ride into space will make her the oldest person to go there. Notwithstanding that edge of space debate, Branson is sure to beat Bezos lifting off Sunday at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. Peter? Tom Costello, thank you very much. And NBC will have live coverage of the launch Sunday morning at 9.45 Eastern on most NBC stations. Tonight in our series Priced Out, we focus on property taxes and why some homeowners are charged higher rates than others, even in the same neighborhood. Megan Fitzgerald explains. A home is more than just a place to live. My great-grandfather purchased the home. This house is a link to Jalen Stevens' past, but he's fighting for its future, struggling to pay the property taxes. I've been risking foreclosure for the last six years. He says his home in East Detroit was overassessed by the city. One study shows nationwide the property tax rate for the least expensive homes is more than double that of the most expensive homes in the same jurisdiction. And those in predominantly black neighborhoods are assessed at a rate 50 percent higher than white neighborhoods in the same area. This is a story of structural injustice. Bernadette Atuahene studies property tax inequity in Detroit. 
Since 2009, one in three homes has been confiscated because of property tax foreclosure. We haven't seen this number in American history since the Great Depression. The city of Detroit admits property tax inequity was an issue, but says that's no longer the case. There is no systemic or systematic overassessment of properties in Detroit. Detroit's lead assessor, Alvin Horn, says that's because of changes that began seven years ago. We have better processes, we have more resources, we have oversight from county and state to make sure that what happened before, that the mistakes of the past never happen again. We asked for data to support the city's assertion that property tax inequity has improved since making those changes, but so far the city has not provided that information. Atua Hene says that's because the problem still exists. Just last year, she helped 68 homeowners, including Edith Ford, file appeals. Like this property tax is sky high. Edith won hers, and her property taxes are now 15% lower. I can afford to fix things at my house. I'm saving money where I can pay my own bills. In fact, all 68 appeals Atua Hene worked on had their assessed values reduced. If there isn't a problem, as the city is suggesting, how do you explain that 68 of those homeowners ended up with lower assessed values? I would say that the process worked. That's why we have an appeals process. Chris Berry analyzes property values across the country. It's not just a problem in blue states or red states. It's in cities and suburbs and rural areas. One issue, assessors only evaluate the exterior. They don't go inside, so they can't factor in upgrades, upkeep, or deterioration. There's lots of features of homes that buyers and sellers get to see, but that assessors don't. So if you file for an appeal, bring pictures of the inside, include images of what's bringing the value down, and provide prices of comparable properties that recently sold in the area. As for Jalen, his appeal was denied. But when NBC News started asking questions, the city acknowledged it made a mistake and now says it's making adjustments, though Jalen is still waiting for official word. He says filing the appeal wasn't easy, but not filing could have been a costly mistake. Megan Fitzgerald, NBC News, Detroit. That is Nightly News for this Friday. I'm Peter Alexander. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. Good night. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.